Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Great to see you today. You should give yourself a big hand for showing up on the second Sunday of January. Doom and gloom and all that everywhere. Predictions of ice storms, I hear. Fire the weather people. That's what I have to say. They've messed up many a Sunday here at the Life Christian Church. Anyway, I'm so glad everybody's here. So happy for all of you who have joined us online today and in our online campus. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. And today, we launched the first trimester of 2022 with a series called Greater Than. For the next four months, by God's grace, we're going to teach our way through the New Testament uh, letter to the Hebrews. And we'll begin that today with a series. It will take us up to Lent with this series called Greater Than. We'll deal with the first four or so chapters of Hebrews and probably be all over Hebrews and and all over Scripture in some ways. And then uh, uh, as Lent begins, the first Sunday of March, we'll launch another series that will focus on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made of himself, take us through Good Friday and Easter. And then post-Easter, we'll do a few more weeks where we'll kind of respond to all of that uh, and focus on chapters 11, 12, and 13 of Hebrews, which is kind of what do we do now? And so um, I hope that you will enjoy this and that it will impact your life in powerful ways. Um, I, I want to begin today by reading a fictional account of the kind of person who may have been one of uh, the recipients of this letter that was written to the Hebrews in about the mid-60s A.D. And I'm going to uh, take a little longer to do this than... Would t- that I would typically read anything, and uh, I do it because I think it frames this in an interesting way. This is a fictional account offered by George Guthrie in his introduction to his commentary on Hebrews. So I'll take about five minutes with this, all right? Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second-story apartment located in a slum on the slope of Esquiline Hill in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of this storm, and Antonius lit a small oil lamp against the gloom. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. Each time he turned the other cheek, it received a slap in kind. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of Jews under the emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed to various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been part of the Christian church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, the ruler of the synagogue, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Christians. 
When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself, and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. He had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than he expected. The church had taken a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. Some, in their disillusionment, doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius bar David remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community, the, the joy of the festivals, and the solemn and celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed members of his family. Some of them still would not speak to him and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was difficult, and today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat toward the little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his, his loss of perspective. Yet in recent days, he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it, the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius's curiosity was aroused, and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from advancing age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained he had talked the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 1.1, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I like that. I think that's very well done. Let me offer a more technical introduction to Hebrews, though. Keep that story in mind. Hebrews was written to Christians who were discouraged and who were being tempted to return back 
to the life they had lived before believing in Jesus. It's common to refer to the recipients of this letter as Jewish Christians because the writer of the letter and the recipients clearly had an amazing grasp of the Old Testament and Judaism, but it's also presumed that there were Gentiles in the mix as well, Gentiles who were God-fearers, who had perhaps participated in the Jewish synagogue before believing in Jesus. Regardless, both the Jewish believers were discouraged and were tempted to return back to Judaism minus Jesus, and the Gentile believers were discouraged as well and were tempted to return back to life as they had known it before becoming Christians. Why were they discouraged? Well, at best, they had been marginalized by their Jewish brothers and sisters. At worst, they were suffering intense persecution. Most believe that Hebrews was written to these Jewish Christians in Rome in the mid-60s A.D. There'd been a persecution, a well-known persecution, against Christians in Rome about 15 years earlier under Emperor Claudius. But this persecution, though there were Christians who had been imprisoned and who'd lost their businesses and who had suffered in a variety of ways, had not resulted in martyrdom. No Christians had been killed in that persecution. But what these people didn't know who were reading this letter was that Nero was about to become emperor, and in fact, they were about to suffer a persecution that would, in fact, result in some of their deaths. It was a difficult time to be a Christian in Rome. They were, they were marginalized. Their Jewish brothers and sisters were upset at them because they were saying that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah. The emperor and his people were upset at him because they were saying Jesus Christ was Lord. Regardless, wherever they turned, they found themselves pushed to the margins of society. And some of these believers were so discouraged that they'd stopped attending church altogether. This is a significant theme of Hebrews. Let me jump all the way to Hebrews 10 to make that point, and then I'll work back towards that in coming weeks. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Here's what the writer to the Hebrews said to these discouraged Christians. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Who was Hebrews written by? Well, this is, as most of you probably are aware, a matter of um, great speculation. No one really knows, but there are certain things that we do know about the person who wrote Hebrews. We do know, for instance, that uh, presumably he was a dynamic preacher. We do know that. Uh, in fact, George Guthrie writes this, that the author of Hebrews crafted his work in the form of a first-century sermon in fact, it may be our earliest and most complete sermon addressed to an established Christian community by any informed estimation. Hebrews, with its striking rhetorical power and elegance, ranks among the greatest homiletical achievements of all time. 
Why do we know that Hebrews is a sermon? It was written like sermons were written at that time. And um, uh, this is as opposed to the way that the letters, the epistles were written. For instance, when Paul wrote an epistle, it was very clear. He was writing a letter. But Hebrews is this masterfully composed sermon written by a, a dynamic preacher. We also know that the person that wrote Hebrews was extremely knowledgeable of the Hebrew scriptures. There are 32 quotations of Old Testament scriptures in Hebrews. And part of what hopefully, hopefully we will enjoy over the next few months is we're going to have lots of excuses to go back into the Old Testament and to grab even some obscure Old Testament scriptures and talk about their relevance and how they point to Jesus and why it matters in our life today. And I think that we're going to have some fun with that. We also know the guy who wrote Hebrews was was very highly educated. There are a lot of reasons that scholars know this, but one is that he was skilled in rhetoric and people who received the highest of educations at that time in the first centuries were skilled in rhetoric. It was one of the disciplines they were taught. He, he also had a mastery of the Greek language. So say those who read Hebrews in the original. It was written in, in, in Greek, of course, as was uh, most of the rest of the New Testament. And he had a masterful command of the Greek language, as well as a vocabulary that revealed him as someone who was extremely well read. But what I like and am focused on as I'm teaching Hebrews today and hope to in coming weeks is that he writes from the perspective of a pastor, a pastor who was deeply concerned about the spiritual condition of his congregation, the way they were being affected by what was going on in the world around them, and the way that this had caused many of them to drift away from a focus on Jesus, and to end up someplace that they really didn't want to be. This pastor is deeply concerned for his people. Eugene Peterson is uh, best known as a scholar. Uh, Eugene Peterson's the guy who translated uh, the New Testament and then other parts of the Bible into the message translation. So you'd be familiar with his work, most of you who've read that marvelous translation. But what he felt most excited about in his life was being a pastor, which he was for some 30 years. He wrote this in his memoir called The Pastor. He wrote, I have no idea who started it, but many years before, some of the young people in the congregation had begun calling me Pastor Pete, which is interesting because his name was Eugene Peterson. Pastor Pete, no one had ever called me pastor before, but as the years went on, I became accustomed to it and found that I rather liked it. Pastor. Pastor, unlike reverend or doctor or minister, wasn't tainted with professionalism, at least to my ear. Pastor sounded more relational than functional, more affectionate than authoritarian. I wanted my life, both my personal and working life, to be shaped by God and the scriptures and prayer. The pervasive element in our 2,000-year pastoral tradition is not someone who gets things done, but rather the person placed in the community to pay attention and call attention to what is going on right now between men and women, with one another, and with God, this kingdom of God that is primarily local, relentlessly personal, and prayerful. Now, of course, I relate to that because I'm a pastor, but I particularly relate to that because I agree with him specifically. To me, the most precious 
way that I can identify myself, at least in terms of my vocation, is simply as pastor. Because a pastor, above all else, is concerned about the condition of the people he or she is leading. A pastor in Scripture is often referred to as a shepherd, and a shepherd cares for his flock, will give his life for his flock. This is the nature of a pastor. And as you hear me teach today, and as you hear me teach in coming weeks, I want more than anything else for you to be impressed with the heart of a pastor who cares deeply about you and what's going on in your life and your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with one another and your relationship to the church and why this matters for your life now and forever. And I'll be very frank when I tell you that I am deeply concerned deeply concerned for us at this time as there are so many reasons for us to get discouraged and distracted and get away from what really matters in life. And that's the perspective that I'm going to be teaching from in coming weeks. Now, the message of Hebrews, in a way, is quite simple. The pastor says, I'll uh, sum it up this way in my own words, he says to his discouraged congregation, hey guys, I want to remind you of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus is who you believe in. Jesus is who you are following. Jesus is the one who brought you into a relationship with God the Father. And when you really understand who he is and what he has done, you will know that he is greater than anything else in your life. He is greater, he says to these Jewish believers, than Moses. He is greater than what you will hear in the synagogue if you decide to return to the synagogue. He is greater than what you will get if you just stay home and don't worship. He's greater than your need to be accepted by people around you. He's greater than your discouragement. He's greater than what's going on in the society around you. He is greater than your greatest failure. He is greater than your greatest success. When it's all said and done, the writer to the Hebrews, this pastor says, if I can just get you to focus on Jesus, everything's going to be okay. See, the more we grow in our understanding of Jesus, the greater he becomes in the realities of our everyday life. Many of you would be familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. In Chronicles of Narnia, Christ shows up in the form of a lion named Aslan. And there's this beautiful scene where Lucy, a little girl who has been growing up through the seven installments of the Chronicles of Narnia, sees Aslan, runs to him, and buries her face in his mane. And Aslan says, welcome, child. And Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he replies, that's because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are. And he says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I love the idea that Aslan had not changed at all. And in fact, this little girl had grown, but to her he was bigger. And it points to the beauty of an expanded soul. And the fact is that when our soul is expanded, to see Jesus better, though he has never changed, he gets bigger to us. 
And part of what I want to do over the next several weeks and in fact months is to help you get a bigger perspective of who Jesus is and why it matters in every area of your life. So let's dig into the text today in kind of an introductory way. Let me do it this way. Four greater than ideas in Hebrews 1, verse 1, through Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. And here's the first greater than idea. It's Jesus is greater than all these other voices. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here's what the pastor writes. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son, Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is, and this theme now begins to show up and shows up all through Hebrews, this shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their name. Terry Muck, a scholar, said that the book of Hebrews could be summed up in seven words. The seven words are God speaks effectively to us through Jesus. So this writer to these, we'll call them Jewish Christians, is reminding them that in the past God has spoken through various ways, using various means, including the prophets. But that everything that God has ever been said has been leading up to Christ and that in Jesus, God has given us his final word. That in Jesus, we discover everything that God wants to say to the human uh, race. And he, as part of this, calls Jesus, depending on which translation you're reading, either the express image of God or the exact representation of God. The New Living Translation, which I'm reading from today, says that the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Jesus Christ shows us what God is like. The word character that's used here actually in the Greek is the the Greek word is character from which we get our English word character and what it meant in its origin and what it meant at this time in history was an exact representation or an express image of something that is attempting to convey itself. And one way that this word was used is that uh, uh, when an image would be um, impressed upon a hot metal surface, the image was called a character. And there's a long history as to how that ended up uh, 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 
with us calling the letters in an alphabet characters uh, stamped on a page. But nonetheless, at this time, the emperor, for instance, who would want people far away from where, from Rome and who would never see him, when the emperor wanted to show people, wherever they were, what he looked like, this was prior to a printing press, uh, uh, he, would, he would put his character, his express image on a coin so that people anywhere could see who he was attached to a particular measure of value. Well, the writer of the Hebrews says, if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to see God's character impressed in the human nature of a man, look at Jesus. In Jesus, you find out everything you need to know about God. And when we're in relationship with Jesus, we are in relationship with God. Now, it might, in fact, I would say it makes sense that someone would look at these people in the first century who were going through so much and were so discouraged, and you would think perhaps they would write a nice, self-helpy kind of seeker-friendly sermon for them to kind of make them feel better. The title of the sermon would be, How to Feel Better About Your Life, or something like that. I've done sermons like that. That's all good and fine. But it's kind of interesting that the, the writer to the Hebrews doesn't start out talking to them about themselves at all, which is like shock in today's world because he understood that if he could get them to have a proper picture of Jesus, to understand who he was, to understand that Jesus made it possible for them to have a relationship with the God of the universe that maybe they would quit looking at themselves so much and quit looking at the world around them and their challenges and get a bigger picture of life and what really matters. So he starts off saying, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Because if Jesus is God who's shown up on this planet, then that's the most important information in the world. And you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To which I would ask us a rhetorical question. What in the world could be more important than that? What, what could be more important than having a relationship with the God who created the universe, who made us, who purposed us, who wants to be in a relationship with us now and forever. What in your life, what in the newspaper, what on social media, what on the nightly news, what on Fox, MSNBC, or CNN, what, what voice speaking into our world could be a more important voice than the fact that God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Here's the second greater than idea. It's that Jesus is greater than your sin. Jesus is greater than your sin. I want to go back into Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and grab verse 3 now. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. 
This is one of the greatest arguments in Hebrews. And by God's grace, we'll come back to this time and again. These Jewish Christians were well-versed in the Old Testament tabernacle system, which was introduced along with the law by Moses at Mount Sinai. And part of what happened in the Old Testament temple or tabernacle is that one time, once a year, one man, the high priest, would walk through the veil into the Holy of Holies where God said he lived, or the most holy place, and he would offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. One time, one guy, once a year, would offer a sacrifice and then no one would go into where God lived, into his most holy place, until the next year when this one guy got to do that. Well, part of the argument in Hebrews is that, that what Jesus has done is greater than that because Jesus has become the high priest a greater high priest, the argument is made in Hebrews, than Aaron, the first high priest, the brother of Moses, and that when Jesus went to the cross, he was the high priest who offered the sacrifice for sin for the whole world once and for all. That a sacrifice never needed to be made for sin again, and that through faith in Jesus, Anyone could walk through the veil, if you please, into God's presence and have an intimate relationship with God who actually would dwell in the temple of a human body. And so, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, when he's talking about being cleansed from sin, he's saying, I want to remind you that what Jesus did is greater than what is done in the tabernacle system by the high priest once a year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He has cleansed you from sin. This seems important to me to just remind us that, be, that sin is the thing that separ separates human beings from God and that Jesus Christ took care of sin, and that because Jesus Christ took care of sin, we are invited to have an intimate relationship with God and that we have the ability to experience in our lives every day, and when we come together to worship, what that one guy once a year could experience when he walked through the curtain to make a sacrifice for sin. Jesus made the sacrifice, the, the barrier in the temple was ripped in two, and all of us are invited to come in. And this is why the writer to the Hebrews seems to be so mind-boggled that people were not coming together for worship. It's like he says... Jesus Christ has made it possible for you to be together with one another in God's presence. Why in the world wouldn't you show up? I mean, this is, look here, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. 
It's not, it's not like he's saying, listen, your duty is you better be in church because the pastor is concerned about how many behinds are in the seats. It's not like we have an attendance quota here. It doesn't make any difference to me one way or another in terms of my job security. How many people should, I guess at some point it could get really bad. How many people, but I've been okay for 30 years, so I'm not really worried about that. I don't need people to show up for my, because I have some need for people to show up. The, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, what I don't get is, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. He cleansed us from sin. He tore down the veil so that you and all of us can go into the most holy place. Where are you? That's the point. The point is, how in the world wouldn't you want to find every possible opportunity to be together with God's people in a place where his presence dwells and where you can worship him. That's his, that's his argument. It's not, it's like, how, how could you possibly miss this? Now that doesn't mean that we can't experience the presence of God in our own uh, lives, in our own prayer time, but there is something markedly important about the worshiping together with other people in a way that allows us to experience that when two or three are to gather together in my name, there I am, Jesus said, in the midst of you. How in the world would you not ignore every possible distraction to fall all over yourself to get to a place where you could be in the presence of God. As I say that today to everybody who's watching online, I count you joining us in our online campus as worshiping together with us today. And I know that some of you watching from different places in the world are way too far away from West Orange to be here together with us. And I also understand why some of you who are close to West Orange might feel more comfortable uh, worshiping online at this point. At some point, I'm encouraging you to know that there is something so special about when we're together in worship. Here a few moments ago when Carl and the band were singing that, nobody greater, nobody greater, I can sing it better than he can, nobody greater than you. I felt like maybe I was going to jump through the roof. You know, it felt so good, so powerful. So what is that? Is that just like being at a concert and, 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 and the music was really good? I mean, the music was really good and it was like being at a concert, but we all know there's something, there's something reverberating in our spirit to being in the presence of God with other people as we've entered his gates with thanksgiving and entered his courts with praise, and we're in his presence together. And I'm yelling a lot now. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't get so discouraged, don't get so distracted that you forget what's really important. God has shown up on this planet in the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has made a way into the most holy place. Come on, come on everybody, and let's meet together so that we can experience God's presence in this place.
Here's the third thing. Jesus is greater than the next greater thing in your life. Let's look at Hebrews 1.4 again. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than. Everybody, if you would please, say greater than. Just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. Now, here the pastor begins to make his case that Jesus is the logical fulfillment of all the promises of Judaism, and that therefore as great as Moses was, Jesus is even greater. Now, side note, according to Scripture and Jewish tradition, God gave the law on Mount Sinai to Moses through the mediation of an angel. This is very important to what happens in Hebrews. And I'm going to come back next week by God's grace, and I'm going to teach about that specific thing and why the rest of Hebrews chapter 1 from, from verse 4 through the rest of the chapter and into Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, the pastor is making a point-by-point -point comparison between Jesus and the angels in order to say that Jesus is greater than the angels. Okay, we'll get to that next week. Again, Lord willing. Um, but today, suffice it to say that the point he's making is that Jesus is greater than the law. Why? The law was given to Moses by an angel in Mount Sinai. And he's making the point Jesus is greater than the law and Jesus is greater than the system that was introduced to the law that we know of as Judaism. That's the point that he's making. Now, was Moses bad? Of course not. Moses was God's man for a certain time to play a critical, indispensable role in human history. It's just that, that Jesus is greater than Moses. Uh, is Judaism bad? Of course not. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was and is the Jewish Messiah. Without Judaism... And the contribution of, 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 of Abraham and his physical seed, we don't get here. There's no Jesus. So, so of course not. Judaism isn't bad. Uh, 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 that, that doesn't make sense at all. Is the Old Testament bad? Of course not. It's God's word. It points us to Jesus. The point is that Jesus is greater than even the greatest people and the greatest things that have ever lived and been. That's the point. The point is, you know, who do you want to find in human history who's more influential, let's say, than Moses? Especially to a Jewish Christian in the first century who's spent all their life studying the law of Moses. And now here they are believing Jesus. What, what, who, 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 who could the writer to the Hebrews talk about who's any greater than Moses? Well, only one person. He says, as great as Moses is, Jesus is greater than him. And this is important, I think, because I think that when we talk about greater than, that it's easy to think, you know, and, and, you know, the low-hanging fruit today is for me to say Jesus is greater than the pandemic. And he is. Jesus is greater. I've never personally ever seen so many sick people in my life 
Thank God the symptoms are milder, but nonetheless, 59, never seen anything like in my life, and I'm assuming none of you have either. Even 18 months ago, I didn't see anything like this in terms of the number of people affected by this. It's craziness, right? Jesus is greater than sickness. Jesus is greater than the political divide in this country. Jesus is greater than uh, the challenges that we have and the things that we need to work through as it concerns race. Jesus is greater than that. I could sit here and start listing all kind of challenging, difficult, problematic things, and it's pretty obvious to say Jesus is greater than that. But, and, and I want to make that point. But then I, I want to make this point because this is a big part of the point of Hebrews. Think about the best thing in your life. You just grabbed your wife. Jesus is greater than her. No, no, no. Don't, don't push her away. Because she's great, okay? I'm with you, right? Right? Now, 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 now wait, you clap to the wrong thing. You clap because you feel sorry for her. Don't feel sorry for her. She's doing great. She has a husband who, when I said, what is the, the best thing in your life, put his arms around his wife. That, that, that's worthy of clapping, but, but here's what you should clap to, because if you don't get this, you're going to miss the whole point of life. Jesus is greater than the next greater thing in your life. Yeah. And we could get distracted at this time by all the bad things, and there's lots of bad stuff, that get us discouraged and get us to lose our focus, and to forget who Jesus is. But, but, but probably for most of us, if you're sitting in this room, you've worked your way through that. You slogged your way through the newscasters lying again and saying that there's going to be an ice storm. These weather forecasters, they lie every time. No, I, God bless. Probably six weather forecasters here. I'm sorry. I'm not that sorry. Just get it right on a Sunday morning, okay? That's all I'm, so, the rest of the week, I don't care. Don't mess up Sunday morning with your apocalyptic Saturday into Sunday, the world's coming to an end weather predictions. What was I talking about? If you're here on a Sunday morning, you figured out how to work your way through the kind of, especially today, guys. Look, guys, you guys who are sitting in this room right now, I, you know, I commend everybody joining us, wherever they're joining us from. But let me just, let me just pastorally say, when I look out here and I see you guys, user, you guys are guys who are willing to risk something and you're willing to put up with things and you're willing to accept some challenges and, and, and brave apocalyptic potential weather that never happens anyway. And so I'm not worried right now about you being distracted by the bad things. I have a feeling, but here's what I am concerned about. It's, it's, it is that people like us get distracted by the good things. Idolatry, Tim Keller said that I, I, rarely is idolatry about something bad. Idolatry is typically about something good. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. For us needs to read, thou shalt have no, uh, my, my, my kids will not be before him. My wife will not be before him. My job, my well-paying job will not be before him. My aspirations, my dreams, my kid's soccer game. I know that for some, that's like, I just, I just blew your mind. It's like, this is really going to stun you. You ready for this? Jesus is greater than your kid's soccer game. 
Some of you just said, I'm never going back to that church because that is too far. I'm getting way off track and going way over time here. But, but the, the, the point is, whatever you name, good or bad, Jesus is greater than that. And here's just an example as I start to wrap this thing up. Here's an example of what that looks like as you go through history, as you go through Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. I know you guys are going to get very excited about this, but we'll probably do a week on Melchizedek. Or we could just title something, How to Have a Better Life. And then I'll talk about Melchizedek, and you'll think I was going to give you a self-help sermon. And I talk. But anyway, who's Melchizedek? Well, in short, Melchizedek is, is, it was either the pre-incarnate Christ or a type of Christ in the Old Testament who had a relationship with Abraham, to make a long story short, and Ab- Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. It's the first time tithing happens in all of Scripture. It happens all the way back in Genesis. And then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. All right? So, 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 so here's, so, uh, consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth. And Melchizedek placed a blessing on Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. Let me shorten that and sum it up this way. You know how great Abraham was? Jesus is greater than Abraham. That's the point. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence in a better hope. By the way, this word, depending on what translation you're reading, there's one word that's translated either greater, superior, better, and and that's the thread. So if you see better, superior, greater, it's the same word, it's the same concept showing up in different places in this book. For the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence and a better hope. Is the law bad? Of course not. The law is not bad. The law even today is the, is the, is the, is the foundation still today of Western civilization. More importantly, the law is what taught us that we need Jesus. Bottom line is the law is great, but Jesus gives us a better hope. Hebrews 7.22. Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Now Jesus, our high priest, has uh, 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 Hebrews 8.6 says, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. So this now, the old covenant, the old covenant established through first Adam and then Abraham and then Moses and then David, the old covenant, all of its iterations was great. But Jesus now, through the new covenant, through what he did through the through his death, and resurrection and exaltation is greater than the law. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is why this tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. So he says to these Jewish Christians, as beautiful as the Old Testament system was and where an animal would would, would be sacrificed because its blood based on your faith would help bring remission of sins or bring remission of sins. He says, that's all wonderful. But Jesus Christ offered a better sacrifice than the sacrifice that was given through the offering of animals. He's greater than the greatest thing. Then then he's greater than the bad things. Here's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. 
where Paul says to these, these believers, you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you own was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. He says, you know what? You're going through a tough time. You're discouraged. I asked someone just this morning, how are you? A very optimistic, positive person. I've known them for years. I'm very close to them. They said, oh, it's really a difficult time. I think probably most of us are experiencing that reality in our lives right now. It's crazy. I talked to a medical doctor this morning trying to serve people who are sick. Seven people on his team are sick. They had to shut the office down and he said, really, we're here to serve people in a time of need. And now all of us are sick and is just all of us could tell stories about the bad things that are going on. Well, Jesus is greater. He has better things waiting for us. Hebrews chapter 11, 35. This is about people who are persecuted, but it says they place their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Name Anything you want to name, Jesus is greater than, far superior to, much better than that. And here's my fourth and final point. Jesus is greater than the currents that cause drift. Jesus is greater than the currents that cause drift. Let's look now. Let's jump from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, which we've been reading The rest of Hebrews 1, this comparison to the angels, which represent the law. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, where the writer, the pastor does what pastors are supposed to do in their sermons every once in a while, actually bring it back to the main point. And this is what he does here. He says, so we must listen. With all the stuff we've just said in mind, we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak, and God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose Another translation, the NIV has Hebrews 2, 1 like this. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. See, when it's all said and done, the, writers to the, the writer to the Hebrews was concerned about that. The reason he talked about Melchizedek, the reason he talks about Abraham, and the reason he talks about Moses, and the reason he talks about sacrifices, the reason he talks about all that is one simple reason. He is so concerned that the people he's writing to are going to drift away. And when it's all said and done, the reason I've stood up here and taught for too long, typical too long, is because that's my concern as well. My concern is that there are currents that we don't even see that are taking us someplace we don't really even want to go, but if we don't pay attention, we're going to end up there. I had several summers when I was obsessed with boating. And I leased a boat, power boat, up on Lake Apotkong. And I'd go out on Mondays, my day off in the boat when it was quiet. And I'd always do the same thing. The first 20, 30 minutes, 50 miles an hour around the edge of the lake. Get my adrenaline going. And then I'd go find some place and I'd drop an anchor and and then turn the boat off 
turn the radio on and um, get a book and do what I love to do, and that is just sit and read for hours. And more than a few times, while I'm sitting there reading, all of a sudden I'd look up and the boat had lost its mooring, the anchor did not hold, and I was up about to crash against the rocks. I was someplace I didn't want to be. And the reason that I drifted was simply that I didn't pay attention. And see, this is what happens when you don't focus on Jesus. When you don't focus on your relationship with Jesus, People don't drift away, most people, not most people, because they get up one day and say, ah, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like church. I don't want to hear teaching. I, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want it anymore. It happens sometimes, but rarely. Usually what happens is all of a sudden people wake up one day and they're crashing against the rocks. There's someplace they don't want to be. They didn't mean to get there, but it was the inevitable result of not paying attention. And there's a punishment associated with this. The writer to the Hebrews said, if you think that the people who didn't keep the law and got punished, you, you, you think that was just them, how in the world could those of us who have such a great salvation, a greater salvation, ignore it, be indifferent to it, not pay attention to it, not focus on it, drift away from it, and think that we're going to escape a negative consequence? See, God gave us free will, and part of the free will is he lets us have what we want. He says, you can have your will or you can have my will. That's your choice. And so the inevitable result of us getting what we want when it's not in line with his will is we end up someplace we don't want to go. The secret is to pay attention. Guys, there's a next step card. There's a connection card in a seat back pocket close to you and i just love for you to grab that would you would you grab that and i know some of you are on the app and you see it on the app or those of you watching online can can find it online i want to ask i want to now it, we're very intentional about this at the life christian church our goal is not just to do nice church services and then come back and do another nice church service next week though we hope to do that. Our goal is to get people to make decisions to grow spiritually. And um, we think that's the key to people living the life that God dreams for them. And so today, at the beginning of this trimester, I'm gonna, I have some very intentional next steps that I'd like for you to consider. I'd like for you to say back to me, Pastor, 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 I know you're concerned about us. And here's my response to your concern. This week I will pay attention to Jesus through dedicated times of prayer. I assume and hope most of you are spending dedicated time in prayer, but I wanna ask you at the beginning of this year to make sure you're putting aside time, special time, unique time, to pay attention to Jesus. Emily Griffin wrote that prayer is essentially paying attention. Secondly, I commit to meet together for worship on Sundays throughout this series, whether in person or online. i just like for you to say, whether it's online or being here in person, I, I'm not going to miss a week of this series. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. I'm going to be challenged. Third, 
I will consider engaging in the spiritual growth plan in order to pay better attention. Both Ben and Christian talk to you about some of the elements of that. I'd like for you to think about it this week and what would it look like for you to engage in the spiritual growth plan. So we're going to listen to the voice of God through Jesus Christ. And we're going to focus on him so that we do not drift away.